Today, I thought we would start with something to kind of get the juices flowing around today's theme. Many of you know we've been looking at the Ten Commandments this summer, and so I think after this clip, you will probably know the commandment that we're looking at today. The color of this pen is... <laughs> the color of this pen is <laughs> The color of the pen that I hold in my hand is All right, so who can guess what is our commandment for this week? What's that? Thou shalt not lie. How did you get that? I probably should have told you a little setup that he was trying to, he's, he's a, the joke is, and it's not an entirely fair joke, there's a lawyer joke here. Um, he's a lawyer and he's trying to, he's been cursed so that all he can do is tell the truth. And so he's trying to tell a lie and the lie he's trying to tell is that the pen is red which he obviously couldn't do. And I know there's a, the reason you might laugh, there's a lawyer joke here. It's not entirely fair. I know some lawyers who are among the most honest people that I know, for the record. But I think we also laugh when we watch clips like this because although none of us is like a big fan of telling lies, I think on some level, a lot of us, we don't necessarily see the harm either. Not if it's not like a really big lie, you know what I mean, like the color of a pen or something like that. So when we put do not lie up against other commandments, which are more familiar, like do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, uh, this is the one commandment that I think most people buy into, but also don't think is that big a deal and don't necessarily put as much energy into practicing in their daily lives. So this week, as we near the end of our summer-long series on the Ten Commandments, we're looking at the Ninth Commandment, which is, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, or as people commonly refer to it, do not lie. All right, so that's what we're looking at. And I'm hoping that as we do, we'll see together that honesty is profoundly more significant than what we sometimes think. In fact, what I'm arguing is that lying attacks the essence of who we are. 
But seeing ourselves through the eyes of God can actually restore, restore our sense of integrity. So my argument today is that lying attacks the essence of who we are. So it's a bigger deal than we think. But seeing ourselves through the eyes of God can restore our sense of integrity. And I'm using the word integrity because I think it's really helpful to understand what's going on here when we talk about honesty and telling the truth and what is lying and things like that. Integrity comes from the Greek word integer. Now, does anyone here remember from grade school or maybe middle school math what an integer is? A whole number. Who said it? A few people. A whole number. So the lawyer. The lawyer. One of the, good, one of the many good lawyers that I know, I should say. A couple of them sitting almost in the front row. Um, still here. It's, it's, it's awesome. Um, so an integer is a whole number. That means there's no fractions. It's not divided up in any way. It's not like one and a half or one and three quarters. It's one or two. It speaks to wholeness. And so today we're going to talk about being a whole person, a person that's not divided, but stable and secure in who you are. No matter what the situation or environment you find yourself in, that's what integrity lends itself towards. It's, it's wholeness. So for you to restate the command we're looking at today in a positive way, instead of do not bear false witness, we could say, be a person of integrity. Be a whole person. And that's what we're looking at today. I want to give props to a sermon that I heard by Timothy Keller, who's a famous preacher in New York City. It really helped me a lot. And I want to say that up front. So let's read our first passage for today. This is Psalm 15. I think that has some insights in into how we can be more whole people. It starts and it says this, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts, And does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. So I think what we can see here, or one of the things we can see here in this psalm, is that it discusses what it means to be a person who's rooted, who's stable, who won't be shaken, who has a solid foundation, who's a whole person. And if you notice, the author here, the psalmist, connects it again and again to being in a state of integrity or being a person of integrity. And so I think what we can learn from this is several things. First, that the truth about becoming a whole person is that whole people can feel all right without doing others wrong. Whole people can feel all right without doing others wrong. You notice it says the one whose walk is blameless. These are the people who are rooted and stable and not shaken, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. And I want you to notice that the one who will not be shaken in this psalm is the one who speaks the truth from their heart, utters no slander, casts no slurs. In other words, what they say reflects the reality of what is actually true. From their heart, no slander, no slur. It's actually what is reality. And this is important because 
what the psalmist highlights is that these people do no harm or no wrong to their neighbors. In other words, I think the opposite we can take from this is when we misrepresent reality, when we lie, we hurt the people around us. We undercut, in particular, their personal sense of well-being and dignity. Misrepresenting reality, in other words, undercuts the dignity of others. That's why this is a bigger deal than we typically think that it is. Generally, when we tell a lie, it's for our own benefit, right? It's, to, it's an act of self-preservation for ourselves, right? We're trying to protect our image, uh, our prospects, our reputation. There's a reason we tell a lie, and usually it's because it helps us. We're creating, though, in others a misperception of reality that benefits us with little regard for how it affects them. That's what a lie is. And this can take all different forms, lies, exaggerations, half-truths, even misleading silences can do this. They can allow what is not really true to sort of be perceived and accepted around us. So when we find out that we've been lied to or one of these things has taken place, it it actually really cuts, doesn't it? There's often a sense of betrayal that we feel. Betrayal is when one person pretends that you're important when really something else is more important to them. And when we lie, we tell people around us that my well-being, my reputation, my security is more important than yours. I misrepresented something to benefit myself. I used you to my own ends. You see how that works? And in essence, you're telling the person that you're misleading you are less than me. I can use you. And this undercuts their sense of dignity, their sense of well-being. It's saying you're less than me. You have less dignity than me. I'm more worthy to be protected. I can mislead you for my own benefit. And I think that's really the essence of what God is trying to protect people from. Now, To help understand this, I think if we can remember where we started in this series, that the whole Ten Commandments comes in a historical period, a historical context. It wasn't written in just in a vacuum. It was written to a particular people. It was written to a brand new nation of Israel who had just been delivered out of slavery. And the people in Israel had only known one thing. They had known slavery. Slavery steals the sense that people have of their own dignity. They can't even own themselves. And so you have this whole people, this whole culture who have been owned for generations, lived in slavery for generations. And when God writes to them the Ten Commandments, I think at least in part it's an effort to help them see the world in a new way. And you can read these commandments and almost every one of them speaks to an individual's dignity and value that is not above anyone else, but is not below anyone else either. And I think one of the things God's trying to do is create a people that understands their value in a deep enough way that they don't have to push other people down to prop themselves up, that they don't repeat the sins that were sinned upon them when they were slaves in Egypt. 
And so we've said that the Ten Commandments can actually be read as a love letter, as guidelines to shaping and reshaping a whole people to view the world in a different way. Now you might say, wait a minute, Brad. You know, sometimes I shade the truth for the benefit of others, not for my benefit. And these little white lies, they protect the feelings of other people. And I'm actually more concerned about them than me. Some examples of this might be phrases like, Phyllis, you haven't aged a day. (laughs) Or, oh, I would love to, but you know I'm going to be out of town. Or whatever your answer to, what did you think of my short story, (laughs) might be. Or, this is the classic, does this outfit make me look fat? Now, often when we think that we're just shading the truth in these situations, that we're actually helping the person that we're speaking with, that at least we're sparing their feelings. I think if we actually think a little bit deeper, I'm not sure that we are. You know, on the surface, we're being nice. But in the end, I don't think this approach is necessarily helping the person we think we're benefiting. See, the problem or one of the problems with little white lies or harmless lies or shading the truth and the ways that they undercut the dignity of our friends and family and the people around us is that when you shade the truth, even in an apparently kind or benevolent way, you're basically saying you can't handle the truth. And you know who we tend to take this approach to most often? Children. Children. And rightly so. You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember wow, sometime in my teens reading the whole Bible for myself and reading some of the stories and going, oh, I never heard that before. And I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, but incest, murder, uh, genocide, all kinds of crazy things that as a six-year-old, I probably wasn't ready to handle. But hopefully, as an adult, or even a young adult, I'm growing in a way that I can at least begin to deal with these things and know that they exist. But when we tell people, and that's a small thing, but when we tell people, when we shade the truth, one of the messages we're giving to them is basically you can't handle the truth. And we're treating them like children. Now, I'm not saying that we bludgeon people with the truth. I'm not saying we're not sensitive. I'm not saying we don't use common judgment, find ways to communicate things that are kind and true, are loving and true. You don't want to hit someone over the head with the truth. You can hurt them with that. But I want us to be honest with ourselves. Usually, we're not helping the person by shading the truth, and usually we're still kind of protecting ourselves as much as we think we're trying to protect them. And harmless lies undercut the dignity of people around us just like self-motivated deceptions. And I think we need to remember when we hide the truth, we're treating people like children, like they're not mature enough to handle the truth that I can handle. And then we end up looking down on people again which is what the whole command is trying to keep us from doing. Next, 
people who are whole, people who cannot be shaken, whole people keep their word. You notice one verse that really sticks out to me is the one that said, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Keeps an oath even when it hurts. You know, that's really the test of your, your and my word is when it hurts. Because if it doesn't hurt, it's really easy to keep a promise or an oath. G.K. Chesterton came up in our last sermon. He said, a promise is an appointment that you make for the future. In other words, just as forgiveness frees us from our past, a promise frees us from our future. This is what I mean. It's a way of saying that I will not be controlled by my surroundings, by my impulses, my genes, or my history. And I think sometimes we tend to think that we must not keep promises if they aren't meeting our needs. That promises are that are binding, steal our freedom to be happy. But what we fail to realize is that when we break a promise, we're actually becoming slaves or bound to whatever it is we're breaking the promise for, to our glands, to our past, to our feelings. And promises actually provide for us self-determination so that we're not ruled by the impulses in our lives. Promises affirm that we're human beings with the ability to see beyond the immediate and make decisions for ourselves. Now, there's a famous play, you guys, some of you know that I studied theater when I was a younger person, and it's called A Man for All Seasons. It's based on the story of Sir Thomas More, who was, I think, the Archbishop of Canterbury when King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife and marry someone else, which was prohibited by the church. But Henry VIII wanted Sir Thomas More to say that it was okay. Um, and so Sir Thomas More wouldn't, or there would not have been a play. So Sir Thomas More, who actually is a historical person who's much more complicated than this play uh, portrays him, but Sir Thomas More in the play is in prison and under the threat of his life from the king for not doing what the king wants. And while he's in prison, his daughter... Uh, Margaret, also known as Meg, comes to see him. And she says this, Then say the words of the oath, and in your heart, think otherwise. And Moore responds, What is an oath then, but the words we say to God? And when a man takes an oath, Meg, he's holding his own self in his own hands like water. And if he opens his fingers then, he needn't help to find himself again. See, when we lose our word, we lose part of ourselves, just like water running through our fingers. We aren't whole anymore. We're saying that everything around us rules who we are, and we lose a sense of identity. We're defined by other things. We become fractured and defined by the pressures in our lives. That's why promises are important to keep, why they're worth keeping even when it hurts. Now, we'll say this. I know that sometimes we make promises that we shouldn't. And I do think there are times where we just have to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have made this promise and ask for forgiveness. So I'm not saying that if you've made a mistake, 
that you can't ask for forgiveness and break a promise. But I'm saying, in general in our lives, we keep a sense of our identity by following through with what we say we're going to do. When we lose our word, we lose part of ourselves. Next, I think we can see from the psalm that whole people are who they appear to be. So verse 1 says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one who speaks truth from their heart. I think what this is indicating is that when someone says, when, when what someone says is in line with who they actually are, what they say connects with who they are in their heart, that's evidence of being a whole person. A hypocrite, however, is an actor. I'm an actor. I've done a lot of acting. It's someone who pretends to be one thing, but in reality is something else. And someone who uses their words and actions to misrepresent reality to those around them. And it's easy to lambast or tear into hypocrites. But I think if we understand the root of hypocrisy, we might be more compassionate towards people and even see ourselves more clearly. The root of hypocrisy is this, I can't be accepted for who I am. The root of hypocrisy, I can't be accepted for who I am. I have to put up a front. I have to adopt an image. I have to show something else or I'll be rejected. And hypocrisy is an unwilling or an unwillingness, I guess, to recognize our need. All it does is unwittingly undercut our sense of well-being and cut us apart. We're one person in one environment, another person in another. And the beginning to the solution, I think, is honesty. Simply admitting our need, who we are, our shortcomings. There's a famous story that Jesus tells about two different people. One that you would expect to be a whole person. A very religious person known as a, a Pharisee. They were the most devout people of Jesus' day. They followed all the commands that we're talking about and then some. They gave money to religious organizations. They supported causes. They were zealous for God, for the law, for holiness, for character. And tax collectors who were famous for not caring about any of those things, who were uh, collaborators with a foreign invading army and government who collected taxes for the Romans from their countrymen and often took more than what they were supposed to get. They were sellouts, they were traitors, they were despised, they were considered greedy. So Jesus famously uh, goes to a place of prayer and the Pharisee stands up and says, thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. Woe would it be to me to be like him. And the tax collector prays, oh, God, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, one of those people left justified, and it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Honesty about who we are and our need connects our soul back together. You would think admitting your need or having need would somehow be a sign that you're broken. And maybe you are, but you're less whole. But you're actually closer to wholeness when you can see that and own it. Now, you might think admitting need also would mean that you've, we've totally failed Psalm 15, right? 
we've done so many of the things that it says whole people should not do. Ah! But let me suggest the answer there is no, and that's not what it means. Admitting our need actually opens the door for us to something that we ultimately need, a new identity, or maybe a renewed identity. Let's read another psalm, I think, to help us understand this. It's 11 verses, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing here. Psalm 16 says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You're my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say to the holy people who are in the land, They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names in my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cut. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have, delight, I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Third thing I'd like us to think about is that whole people cultivate integrity by developing a deep sense of identity. But the identity is by connecting to something that's bigger than you or me, that's outside of ourselves. It's not just in ourselves. Instead, connecting to the way that we're seen in the eyes of God, our creator. In this psalm, you'll notice it says, For in you I take refuge. You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. You alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. So there's all these images of security, but they're in what the psalmist refers to as in the Lord, in God. Let me suggest this, that the antidote for dishonesty, maybe the answer to everything that we've talking about today, is this question, God, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Because the answer we get from that question can change our lives. And you know what God doesn't have to say for our lives to be transformed? He doesn't have to say you're perfect. What he does say is you're beautiful. You're my child. You may need some help. You may, need, you may have some rough edges. You may have some broken patterns in your life. But that doesn't change who you are or how I see you. God sees through all of those things that we try and hide. When we're falling in hypocrisy, when we fear that people will reject us, the things that we put up, he sees through all of that. And the opportunity is a theological idea that's called being in Christ. That God sees us in him. And in him who we were created to be. But the simple idea is just that 
He looks at us and affirms us and says, this is my child whom I love. With her, I am well pleased. With him, I'm well pleased. With this child, I am well pleased. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we don't need improvement. Doesn't mean we don't sort of mess up on those Psalm 15 things that are evidence of being a whole person. It just means we're accepted. And that's the reality that enables us not to have to shape-shift reality, misrepresent it. That's what we need. Paul was an early church father. Most of, or Many of his letters became Christian scripture, and in one of them he wrote this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. And that's what God sees. Acceptance that allows us to know who we are. And it's in this knowledge, this knowledge that can free us from the need to lie to protect ourselves, that can free us to give our word and follow through, that can build, free us to build others up with our words instead of use them to build ourselves up. Let's pray. Father, I feel like this thing of receiving your acceptance and believing that it's true and experiencing that reality can be a lifelong pursuit. But I also know that there can be moments and seasons where it's so real. And so our prayer today is for our friends sitting in this room, friends, neighbors, people we're just getting to know, I pray that we all get a taste of that this morning. And for those of us who've experienced some of that, I pray that we'd experience in a deeper way. And I pray in our lives it would be a refrain that we can't get away from. We pray we'd hear it from you. We pray we'd hear it from our friends and neighbors. And we pray, Spirit, you would come and make it real. Amen. If you are on the worship team, please come on up. And also, I'd like to invite our prayer representative to come and share some of the impressions they got uh, from this morning's prayer time. Here are some impressions that we had this morning uh, in prayer. Uh, we saw someone with an intense longing or need coming to Mosaic, hoping to find whatever it was there that they were looking for. And as they sat with the congregation and sat through the music and the sermon, they still hadn't heard from God, still had that need crying out, and they thought maybe it was a lost cause. Uh, we felt like God wanted to reach out and speak to them